Let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as we have spent our time this morning meditating on the cross, cannot help but to respond in worship. What a privilege it is. Even as we look at this passage and we see Jesus Christ, we see his suffering and his death, the cross that he bore, and we recognize that it is our cross. It is our sin. It is our punishment. It is what we deserve. And yet God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Heavenly Father, we rejoice in this cross. This cross that should bring shame and suffering brings glory and life. Heavenly Father, we pray even in this hour as we look at this passage that we would be moved, that your spirit would move through the word of God, that you would work in each and every one of our lives, that you would give me boldness to proclaim the word of God this morning with clarity and with authority, that the word would go forth in power and that your purpose would be accomplished in each and every one of us. Be honored in this service, Father. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. As we come to John 19, 16 to 42, the end of John 19, coming to the end of three Sundays, um, as we've walked through the betrayal, the denial, the trial, and now the death of Jesus Christ. And I want to go back as we start this morning with the quote that I read at the very beginning as we started before we, we talked about the denial and the betrayal of Jesus Christ. It's a quote from Leon Morris. He says this in his commentary. He says, John has his own way of handling these events. He's talking about Jesus' death and resurrection. He's mentioned already in the quote how, how all Gospels, uh, this is kind of the climax of the Gospels, the story of the cross, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But John has his own way of handling these events. A way which stresses the divine overruling. John indicates plainly that the outcome was completely in God's control. Here supremely we see the purpose of God worked out. And here supremely is the glory of Jesus displayed. Here supremely is the glory of Jesus displayed. As we come to the cross of Jesus Christ, as we see this man who was crushed for our iniquity, who was pierced for our transgression, who was cut out of the land of the living for our sins, we don't see shame. We see the glory of Jesus Christ. We see the hope of the cross. It's a heavy passage. And yet it's a passage in which we rejoice, for we know the end, do we not? It's a passage, even as we work our way through this passage, and as we've done it through the beginning of John 19 and the ending of John 18, we see the sovereign hand of God throughout the entire episode of the death of Christ. God has not lost control. The world is not spinning out of control. Satan is not winning. 
Sin does not have the upper hand. As you come to the end, as you come to the cross, as Jesus dies, God wins. And Jesus is glorified. As we work our way through this, there's four points, and actually our four points come from Isaiah 53, because I think it's important for us to see the connection back to the Old Testament. In fact, that's part of seeing God's sovereign hand in what he's doing here, is all of the prophecy that has been fulfilled even in the death of Jesus Christ. This is not something that just happened out of the blue. This is something that God has planned and perfectly orchestrated. And so as we work our way through this, we'll see that he was numbered with the transgressors. We'll see that he was crushed for our iniquity. We'll see that he was pierced for our transgressions. And we'll see that he was cut off out of the land of the living. First thing we see this morning, verses 16 to 22, is that he was numbered with the transgressors. Verse 16 starts out this way, Then he delivered him... The he here is Pilate. The trial has ended. He has delivered him to be crucified. He delivered him to them to be crucified. That them there is kind of vague. And I think John does that purposefully. You see, literally, the them is the soldiers tasked with the responsibility of crucifixion. They take Jesus and they move him along in the process. But I think John here purposely leaves it vague. Because he wants us to see the true guilt behind this. The real blame lies with the people. It is the the demand of the people that leads to the death of Jesus. Delivered him to them to be crucified and they took Jesus and led him away. It's at this point in the other Gospels, in Matthew 27, 26, and Mark 15, 15. At this point, having been condemned to death, that Jesus is beaten again and here more severely. This is his second beating. He's already beaten and bloody. He's already weak. But now, having been condemned, he is no longer treated as innocent. Now Pilate is no longer trying to satisfy the crowd. It is over. He has given him over to them. Death is imminent. He is now a condemned man, and he is treated as a transgressor. He is treated as guilty. His beating, as, uh, as described in Matthew 27 and Mark 15, is the most severe of the three levels of Roman beatings. For non-citizens of Rome, as Jesus would have been, there would be several executioners who would carry this out. Several professional men whose job it is to do this beating and this whipping. For non-citizens, the whips would have had pieces of bone or metal or, or rock tied to the whip, connected and planted in the straps. And as time after time, they whip that, those straps onto his back. Those pieces of metal and stone and bone would have dug into his back and ripped the flesh out.
And they would do this time and time again until those who were doing the beating were exhausted. Not until the one being beaten, until those who were doing the beating were exhausted. He's beaten. And he, verse 17, after undergoing that beating, a beating which so often would leave the one being beaten dead, he bearing his cross went out to a place called the place of the skull. The condemned is here forced to carry the cross beam on which they will die to the place of execution. The crossbeam would have likely weighed approximately 110 pounds. Jesus is already exhausted. His strength is gone. His body is broken. He is bearing his cross. As Isaiah 53, 4 and 5 remind us, he is really bearing my cross. It is my burden that he carries. It is my sin. He bearing his cross went out to a place called the place of the skull. Matthew, Mark, and Luke record for us that Jesus carried his cross as far as he could to the gate until weak from the beatings he collapses and Simon of Cyrene carries it the rest of the way. Place of the skull likely gets its name from the, the look of the rock an area set aside for death, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha, in Latin it is Calvaria, from which we get our word Calvary, the place of the skull, where he was crucified, where they crucified him, and two others with him, one on each side, and Jesus in the center. As Isaiah 53, 12 mentions, he is numbered with the transgressors. He is treated as guilty. He is crucified between those who are guilty, in the midst of those who are guilty. He's numbered with the transgressors. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross. This would have been a fairly normal practice that they would have done at a crucifixion to post the crime for which the condemned was crucified a lot of times as they're carrying their cross through the streets, the sign would have been hung from their necks as they get to the cross and be put there on the cross so everyone knows, deterring others who would be tempted to attempt these crimes. This is the end result. Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Here Pilate is continuing his mocking of the Jewish leaders. They have forced his hand. They have forced him to condemn an innocent man. He's taking every little stab he can at them. In fact, by putting a mock title here, the king of the Jews, Pilate shows his disapproval of this crucifixion. He doesn't try to put any kind of real crime. He puts this mock crime up here. Here's your king, the king of the Jews. 
This is what you've condemned him for. And yet, once again, we see the sovereign hand of God as in seeking to mock the Jewish leaders, Pilate accidentally proclaims the truth clearly for all to see. Here on this cross hangs the king of the Jews, one who is worthy of worship. Here in the midst of sinners dying for sin is the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this title for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. It would have been outside the gates. This title was written in Hebrew and Greek and Latin. Again, literally everybody who walks by could have read it. Hebrew is the language of the Jews. Greek would have been the lingua franca of the day, the, the business language, and Latin was the language of Rome. Therefore the chief priests and the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but he said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate answers, What I have written, I have written. It is what it is. You can sense the, the, the hate, the tension between these two groups. Religious leaders who have forced Pilate's hand to get what they want. Pilate who resents them for that. He was numbered with the transgressors. Treated as guilty. Secondly, he was crushed for our iniquity. As he, truly, the king of the Jews, the son of God, hangs on the middle cross... Isaiah 53, 5 says he is crushed for our iniquities. Then the soldiers, when they crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier a part. Likely these four parts would be those that go over his undergarment. So there was also a tunic. The tunic would have been an undergarment. The four parts likely would have gone over the undergarment. They would have been an outer garment, shoes, a belt, a head covering, things like that. They divide these four among them. So there's four soldiers tasked with this crucifixion. Then there's this tunic, this undergarment. It was without seam, woven from top in one piece. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it. Whose it shall be? Again, here we see the sovereign hand of God that the scripture might be fulfilled. Scripture that we read this morning, scripture we find in Psalm 22, 18, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots. In Psalm 22, David is using this very imagery of an executioner dividing the clothes of the condemned. So it's a well-known practice that the, the, ex the, the clothes, the possessions of the condemned was the right of the executioners. In Psalm 22, David uses this imagery to describe the depth of the trouble in which he finds himself. I find myself, God, in a place where my executioners are already dividing my clothes. When you get to that point, death is near. When your executioner has taken your clothes and they're dividing it among themselves, death is near. That's the point David is making in Psalm 22. 
Lord, where are you? Death is near. And as we find Jesus on the cross as they are dividing his clothes, death is near. Therefore, in fulfillment of Scripture, the soldiers did these things. Not, that does not mean that the, scripture, that the soldiers knew the Old Testament and they said, all right, well, we know that at this point we need to do this. It's not the idea here. It's the idea here is that in order uh, that um, the, the idea here is that this is what is really going on. They have their own selfish motivations, but God is really at work behind the scenes. Again, here clearly we see God's complete control. The scripture, once again, is fulfilled. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Here we have four women. But only one of Jesus' disciples is mentioned. As we read this, my mind goes back to Psalm 69.8, a psalm that we were in this past Wednesday. In Psalm 69.8, David once again is abandoned by even his closest friends and followers. Here we find Jesus on a cross. And where are his disciples? He's abandoned by those who are closest to him. All you find is these four women and this one disciple, John, as we come to see. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, John, standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. He said to his disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. It's a remarkable passage. Even in the midst of crucifixion, in his agony, in his final hour, Jesus cares for his mother. It's an important passage because it shows us that Jesus is teaching that we must leave all and follow him, even as extremely stated as in Luke 14, 26, when he says you must hate your mother and your father. That truth, the need to leave all to follow Jesus, and the biblical principle of honoring our parents are not mutually exclusive. Even as we follow Christ, even as we give all, we must honor our parents. That's what we see Jesus doing here, even in death, even on the cross, in his agony. He continues to honor his mother, to care for her. After this, Jesus knowing that all things were now accomplished. Jesus knowing. That's another theme that we've seen all throughout the book of John. Jesus knows. Back in John 2 and all throughout John, he knows the heart of the people as they come to him. He knows what's going on. That the chief priests and Pilate and the soldiers and everyone else unconsciously plays their part in God's master plan, Jesus knows exactly what God is doing. And the remarkable thing is that Jesus, knowing what God is doing and what that means for him, what it requires of him, obeys perfectly. He submits to the Father. He knows what God is doing. He knows that all things 
are now accomplished. D.A. Carson says this, Jesus' knowledge that all things was now complete is the awareness that all the steps that had brought him to this point of pain and impending death were in the design of his heavenly Father, and death itself was imminent. All things were accomplished. Jesus knows that there is a purpose to this. He knows that God has led him to this point. He knows that God is at work. And so knowing that, that the scripture might be fulfilled, again, it's the second time we see that in this passage, that the scripture might be fulfilled. He said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on hyssop and put it to his mouth. This is different from the wine mixed with gall, that Jesus refused on the way to the cross. The purpose of that drink was to lessen the pain. The sour wine here comes from the soldiers. It is meant to be just enough to satisfy his thirst, just enough to prolong his suffering. The sour wine mixed with gall is all part of the crucifixion process to prolong his death. Again, this comes from Psalm 69:21, which we saw this past Wednesday. That the scripture might be fulfilled. In fact, Psalm 69 is quoted in John 2:17, 15:25, and here in 19:28-29. All throughout the life of Christ we see God fulfilling prophecy. God knows what he is doing all throughout this. He put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. The question is, why did Jesus take the sour wine? What's the, what's the purpose of it? I think... Uh, in the ESV Study Bible, Dennis and Grunem made a good point. They said, likely, the scripture doesn't tell us, but this makes sense to me, likely to moisten his parched throat in order to be able to proclaim a loud cry of triumph at the end of his suffering. Think how dry his throat must be at this point. How worn out his voice from crying as they whip him time and time again. How hoarse. His cries of pain as he stumbles along the streets of Jerusalem carrying his cross as they nail his hands and his feet to the cross as they put it in place as he hangs there and time and time again has to pull himself up. His cries of pain and agony must have completely worn out his voice. But here he has something important to say. I think it makes sense that he would take this to moisten his parched throat to be able to proclaim this, tri this cry of triumph as he takes the sour wine and then he says it is finished it is finished Jesus has completed what the father sent him to do It's one Greek word. 
to telestai. It is the language of transaction. In fact, MacArthur notes that this word has been found on ancient tax receipts, meaning paid in full. It is finished. What I was sent to do, I have done. Sin's debt is paid in full. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Notice the language of purpose here. He gave up his spirit. As he says in John 10, 17 to 18, no one takes my life. I took it up and I lay it down. He willingly gave it up. Gave up his spirit. As we come to the end of verse 30, he was crushed for our iniquity and it is finished. Verses 31 to 37, he was pierced for our transgressions. Therefore, because it was preparation day, this goes back to John 19, 14, the day that we are on, it is Friday, the day before the Sabbath, the day of preparation. This is not a normal Sabbath. It's the Sabbath of the week of Pentecost, of, um, not Pentecost. Um, my mind's blinking. Passover. Uh, of Passover, it is a high Sabbath. That the body should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken. That they might be taken away. What's the purpose of breaking their legs? See, typically the Romans would leave bodies on the crosses long after death. In crucifixion, it would take days sometimes for death to come. And then once death did come, they would leave the bodies up there to rot, to be a warning for vultures to come and to pick and to devour. But if, as in this case, there was a reason to hurry, they could speed up the process by breaking their legs. How does breaking legs speed up the process of crucifixion? In crucifixion, it is often not the whip that kills you. It is not the nails that kill you. Crucifixion is a slow death by suffocation. The weight of the body pulling down on the arms makes breathing difficulty. And the only relief is to pull yourself up for a gulp of air before falling back down again. Often, sometimes in, in a picture, you'll see on a cross a little platform that they put for their, their legs that they can push up on. That was not meant for mercy. That platform was meant to prolong suffering, to give them something to push on so that they can all the more stay alive and that death would come even slower. As they pull up, their full weight of their body is on the nails that are through their bones. Full weight. How painful that must have been. It 
is they break their legs. The breaking of the legs prevents the crucified from pushing up to get more air. With broken legs, you cannot push up. Therefore, your only hope is to pull up with your arms, which are already exhausted by this point. So by breaking the legs, it hurries death. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. When they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And immediately blood and water came out. Jesus is unquestionably human. And he's unquestionably dead. It's hard not to see in the blood and the water that flow from the side the forgiveness and cleansing in the blood of Jesus Christ. And he who has seen has testified and his testimony is true and he knows that he is telling the truth. John 35, John 19.35 assures us that this is an eyewitness testimony. I, John, have seen this, and I have written this, and I assure you that it is true, so that you may believe. What is John's purpose in writing this? It's the same purpose for writing the whole book, that as you see the suffering servant, as you see Jesus dying on a cross for your sins, as you see the blood and the water that flow from his side, that you would turn from your sin and place your faith in Christ alone for salvation, that you may believe. For these things were done, the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierce. Again, this is the third and fourth time in this passage where John has told us that scripture is fulfilled. It is God's purpose that is being accomplished. Not one of his bones should be broken. There's a couple possibilities which scripture that is. I actually think that it makes sense that it's all of them. Exodus 12, 46 and Numbers 9, 12 are both reference to the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb was to be sacrificed with no broken bones. What a picture we find here of Jesus, our Passover lamb. The lamb who dies for the sins of the people, Jesus who dies for the sins of the world. Exodus 12, 46 and Numbers 9, 12 reference the Passover lamb who was to have no bones broken, which is very easy to see Jesus in that he is the Passover lamb. Psalm 3420 could be another passage indicating God's providential care for his suffering servant. His suffering servant might suffer, but none of his bones are broken. We see in Psalm 34. And I don't think it's beyond the realm of possibilities that both of those are true. 
that here in the fact that none of his bones were broken, we see very clearly that Jesus is tied to the Passover. He is the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And yet, at the same time as we see in Psalm 34, 20, that God, even in this, God's providential care for his suffering servants. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they pierced. Comes from Zechariah 12.10. Revelation 1.7. This is a passage that looks forward to the time when Israel would turn in faith to the one who was crucified. The one whom they pierced. But he has to be pierced. That's what Isaiah 53 says. He was pierced for our transgressions. His bones were not broken. They pierced his side with a spear in fulfillment of Scripture. And one day, Israel, who in this moment is crucifying their Savior, who to this day does not believe, one day they will look on him in whom they have pierced. He was numbered with the transgressors. He was crushed for our iniquity. He was pierced for our transgressions. And he was cast out of the land of the living. It's Isaiah 53, 8. After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. I think it's interesting that John includes that. In fact, he goes on to include uh, Nicodemus as well, who came to Jesus by night, also the idea of secretly. And yet, John doesn't necessarily mention that as a negative thing here. Because what we see is we see growth in these men, in Joseph and in Nicodemus. Just as we see growth in Peter throughout the book of John, as we will go on to see in just a, a little bit, as Peter has denied Christ, and then he will go on to do great things. So here we see growth in Joseph and in Nicodemus. These who were once ashamed now step forth in boldness. They step forth and ask Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. Pilate gave them permission, so he came and took the body. And Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, as we see in John 3, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes. About 100 pounds. As Joseph takes care of Jesus' body legally, Nicodemus takes responsibility for caring for Jesus' body. They took the body of Jesus and bound it in strips of linen with spices, as the custom of the Jews is to bury. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. I think it's important for us to, to pause and to just recognize the juxtaposition of death and life. In the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. Death and then life. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. I think that's an important note as well. Jesus is alone in the grave, therefore there's no confusion. He's the only one to walk out of that grave. No one could make the case. Well, it was someone else. It was a mass grave. No one had been laid. So there they laid Jesus because of the Jews' preparation day for the tomb 
was nearby. He's crushed for our iniquity. He's pierced for our transgressions. And there was no doubt that now the Lord of life lies dead in a borrowed tomb. Here, in this passage, in what should bring defeat, we find victory. In what should bring shame, we find hope. All throughout John, building up to this point, we have noted throughout (coughs) Jesus' ministry that Jesus does not go to the cross reluctantly. He knows it is coming. He knows what God is doing. But he goes willingly and he goes victoriously to the cross. And here at the cross, we see the glory of the one who was crushed for our sins. Here at the cross, we see the love of God on full display. That God would do that for us. Here we see the justice and the holy wrath of God unfurled. He is just and justifier. Here we see the wisdom and mercy of God in blazing beauty. And the power of God is proclaimed. And in the ultimate irony, John, a book, a man who loves irony so much, in the ultimate irony, we find that the shame of the cross proclaims the glory of God and accomplishes God's purposes. So how do we respond to a passage like this? It's a heavy passage. In some sense, it's a sad passage. And yet, knowing what this means for us, seeing the fulfillment of Scripture, and and already knowing of the resurrection. For us, it's a joyful, exciting passage. We mourn, and yet we rejoice. So what does this mean for us? Number one, first thing to do is to believe and to be saved. If you are here this morning, and you have never placed your faith in Christ alone for salvation, turn from your sin to Christ today. The Bible says that you are a sinner. And the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. What you deserve for your sin is death. But what we see in this passage is that Jesus died for you. He took what you deserve. He paid your penalty. He satisfied the wrath of a holy and a just God. So that by turning to him in faith, by recognizing that he is the Son of God, and that he died for me, and my hope is not that I can be good enough to earn my salvation, my hope is that in Jesus, the righteous one who died for me, turn and believe in him and be saved. Secondly, for those of us who are in Christ, How do we respond to a passage like this? We proclaim the glory of the cross. We proclaim it to one another. 
even as we will do in just a second as we close by singing the song, Christ is Sufficient, we will be proclaiming the truth that we have just seen in this passage to one another, reminding one another of what we have seen, and yet we will also be responding in God to, to God in worship, proclaiming the truth of God, and then go and proclaim it to the world as well. Proclaim the glory of the cross to one another, responding in worship, in song, and going to the world with the hope of salvation in Christ alone, the glory of the cross. What was meant to bring shame proclaims the glory of Jesus Christ and brings salvation for all who believe.